Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this great learning opportunity. I am David Chini coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia. I am a partner at Georgia Retina, and I am happy to also have my good friend and esteemed colleague, Dr. Esther Kim, coming from Orange County, California. We will be discussing next generation anti-VEGFs. It's, it's kind of the hot topic that we are facing with as retina specialists. And we're looking at finding more durable solutions to retinal diseases. Um, again, welcome, Esther. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. Such a pleasure to be here. So first thing we're going to touch on is, you know, for many years, which we're all familiar with, we've always been focused on treatment, looking at VEGF, right? It's the number one agent that we target when we look on clinical trials or new medications. And VEGF was first found or identified in 1989 by Napoleon Ferreira. And it wasn't until 2004 where we actually started using this for the treatment of neovascular AMD. And so since 2004, all the way up to more recently, this is the molecule that we've been targeting and focusing on for the treatment of these diseases for neovascular AMD. And then in diabetes, it was actually noted and started getting approved for it in 2012. You know, moving from that, I, it's very important to remember these things that we started out with avastin or bevacizumab, and then we moved on to some more of the newer agents, such as ranibizumab, and then aflibercept 2 milligrams, and now we're going to be discussing aflibercept 8 and furisumab. Now, when you look on clinical trials, we know clinical trials, that's where we get the best results that we would expect. And when you look at the data, real world, unfortunately, we're missing the bar, right? All too often... In clinical trials, patients on average would get 8 to 12 injections, which would correlate to improvement on vision of letters 6 to 11 letters. In the real world, in our clinics, if you look on AMD here, you can see after receiving at least five injections, that's when we started to see that trend or improvement in vision. And real world patients only receive on approximately 6 to 7 injections and only getting about a letter of improvement. And the question is why? And I think we're going to touch on some of those reasons why our patients are not getting that transition like we would get from clinical trials. But do you agree with this? Anything that sticks out to you here, Esther? This is so disappointing to see that the improvement in, in vision is so little. It's like one letter in the real world. I really feel like we are failing our patients. Um, but it's also really interesting to see that inflection point happening and how closely it is tied to the number of injections. And like you said, eight, you know, seems to be really the sweet spot for where we need to be in order to maintain these visual gains that we see in clinical trials. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, again, unfortunately disappointing. And if you look on the patients with diabetes, we see the same trend, right? Again, if patients receive greater than five injections, all the way up to, to at least eight, that's when we start getting real improvement with the, the, the visual acuity. Um, clinical trials on average, again, eight to 12, we would expect that, right? These patients are coming in sometimes every month or every two months for treatment. And we see 10 to 12 letters of improvement compared to real world data, only four letters of improvement with on average six injections. Do you think this is, you know, consistent what you would expect in the real world? Uh, maybe indicating how easy it is for patients to come in maybe six times a year? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think what stands out to me is seeing these two slides back to back. The real world data in both slides shows that patients are really only able to achieve about six point something number of injections per year. That seems to reflect that every two months is like palatable, palatable mm -hmm. to the patient and or to the provider. But 
what patients really need is closer to every month and a half to every monthly dosing of these uh, injections with the previously existing medications. So maybe there's something about every two months being all that we can really handle in the real world. Yeah, it's easy. It's more tolerable for the patient uh, versus coming in every every month, every six weeks, etc. Um, let's look and discuss some of these barriers. You know, why is it that these patients compared to real world, what is the reason why they're not getting their injections? And we know there are a whole host of reasons. Here I have a bunch listed, whether it be in general, just compliance, you know, they have other visits, other issues coming up, other medical life crises that may pop up. It could be a more tougher recalcitrant patient, patients that are not responding well to the medication, or we just can't extend like we would like to. Insurance coverage, you know, a lot of times you have step therapy or just financial concerns. You know, for a patient who is a diabetic, leaving work, that's a financial strain. They may not be able to come in and afford to be able to do that. We know that patient also has built up um, fear in terms of getting treatment and injection. And so that patient education, if they're not, they're not having an understanding the importance or need for it, that would also lead to them not coming back for treatment. Some of the things I'm going to be touching on and focusing on is my two cases that we'll be discussing are more of the recalcitrant cases. I'm going to show you two patients who have been through the ringer, right? They've had maybe every agent known to man and looking for, they're still wanting to be able to find that magic bullet, that magic treatment that will allow them to one, not get shots anymore, or maybe prolong their cases where they don't need to get treatment as often. So let's hit the ball rolling. So here's my first case, very pleasant, 86-year-old male. I got to say, when I joined the practice, he was under the care of one of my partners. And this patient, you can see here in 2012, presented with vision of 2050, um, noting that they otherwise have a history of hypertension. Do you talk to your patients with AMD looking at some of their other comorbidities? Do you find that important? Do I think that it the cardiovascular risk factors have been associated with AMD, and if they're flagrantly uncontrolled or if they haven't been addressed, then I do reiterate to them the importance of seeing their primary care provider, but also just other important lifestyle changes, so not smoking, and then particularly trying to adhere to more of a Mediterranean diet. Those are the two other lifestyle points I like to hit. Yeah, I appreciate that, I, and I think that's why put up there just a risk factor of hypertension. And then yes, smoking, as we know, is the number one modified risk factor that they can, patients can quit smoking and make a big difference on their outcome for AMD. So as I said here, this patient is definitely motivated to seek treatment. Fortunately, he has wife and a good support to be able to help him to come in for treatment. And the patient was started on bevacizumab monthly times three. And you can see that it's a good improvement, resolution of fluid, vision is now improved to 2025. Is this usually an agent of choice that you start your patients on or what um, anti-angiogenic medicine do you usually start with and why? So when available to me, as primarily as dictated by insurance, I do like to start with the branded drug. I do find that there is excellent efficacy, predictability, um, safety, and also durability that I think is superior to the alternatives, including bevacizumab. Agreed. And in this case, as I said, remember, this is 2012. This is very early in the advent of um, when we were first starting using um, anti-VEGF medications. And so at the time, you know, this patient doing well on bevacizumab is kind of what we had. 
Um, moving on, here's a color fundus folder and a fundus autofluorescence. You can kind of see the um, drusen in terms of the hyper autofluorescence on the fundus autofluorescence. Um, no clear picture in terms of the subretinal fluid, but here you can see I don't have an FA. Do you routinely get a fluorescein angiography on all your new wet AMD patients? I think in an ideal world, I would love to get an FA on patients at their initial presentation, and I certainly try my best to. I think realistically speaking, when the clinic is very busy or if the, we're backed up, then uh, we do the best that we can, and OCT really is the major driving force in terms of being able to make our clinical decisions. But in a perfect world and when things are done exactly as I'd like them to, I would love to get an FA and look more closely at that CNBM net and be able to compare that with FAs in the future should things change. Yeah, as you know, there have been issues with uh, shortage on the FA dye. And so that, I would tell you, has been limiting even my own personal um, use of FA. Um, but in general, um, diabetics, I definitely like to get a baseline because a lot of times I think that can change the management and course for the patients. Um, so this patient continued on, was then switched to ranibizumab 0.5 after three, loading because you can see here when they came back, they were still persistent or recalcitrant fluid, even at four weeks and continued monthly at this point, eight ranibizumab and great improvement in September of 2013. Vision was doing much better, 2030. When do you consider switching your patients, you know, from one agent to the, to the next? Is this something you do it after three loading doses? Um, do you wait until six? Is there a time point that you like to use? How do, are you an early switcher? What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, great question. This is where the art of medicine sort of comes in, right? So yeah. I do like to give a medication at least two, ideally maybe three tries um, for it to work before I can say safely that it's failing or not working for the patient. I think if things are moving in the right direction, that's reassuring. But ultimately, if after two or three injections, there's a fair amount of fluid left, I don't really want to waste time um, doing something that uh, isn't working for the patient. So at that point, I would consider switching agents. And things that we know is that some fluid may be okay. You know, that's the thing that a debate that's big out there, right? The question is, is this a new baseline? Are they, you know, doing okay on some subretinal fluid and being able to maintain it? In this case, the patient did have residual subretinal fluid. We know that it was fluctuating. And as such, they were switched over to a flibercept, two milligram on that visit. And you can see here again, after monthly treatment, did fairly well. We tried to extend the patient out at every to six weeks, and lo and behold, more fluid is occurring here. What do you do next? You know. Oh man, these are those patients agent. where you're like, finally, it's pretty. I got the fluid to go away. We're doing well. You're feeling confident. You think you can extend to six weeks, and then boom, you are quickly humbled and brought back down. So this is frustrating. I mean, this is certainly one of those classic recalcitrant cases. It's curious to see how the vision fluctuates so much, how sensitive he is, you know, to that to that sliver of subretinal fluid. So certainly I think that if a flibercept is the only option, two milligrams, then I would just have to shorten the treatment interval. But in an ideal world, I have another agent that's more durable. I can keep the interval or even hope to further extend by switching to another longer acting agent. And as you can see, 2013, we didn't have anything else. So um, that's what we did. Kept them on um, a flibercept doing every, you know, monthly or somewhere in between. And so the patient was continued on that all the way until 2020, because that's all we had. In January of 2020, 
we had this other medicine called bolacizumab, which, you know, it still is in existence, but maybe not used as much. But look on the improvement this patient had on just two treatments. You had complete or a pretty good resolution of fluid. And again, they were kept monthly because we were loaning these patients. But I got to tell you, around this time, that's when there were some issues with um, safety with the medication. And due to that, the patient was actually switched back to a flibrocet. Um, quickly, briefly, what are your thoughts? Did you have any experience with brolicizumab? Um, and what are your thoughts on the safety of that medicine? I, I know many retina specialists would swear that that was like the greatest drawing agent ever. And I don't know if that title still holds today, but uh, certainly I do think it was very effective. But like you said, safety is paramount. So if there's any concerns and now that we have alternatives, you know, why would you play with fire? Right. And so unfortunately, that's why this patient was returned to a flibrocept, which we know was working. Unfortunately, yes, again, couldn't get that extension like what we would love to. Now, thankfully, as you mentioned or alluded to, we have some of these newer, more durable agents. And this patient was then given a flibrocept 8 milligram in September. And you can see here, there was significant improvement after just that one treatment. That's awesome. I mean, I think the future is bright. You know, we'll see how he does after loading doses or extension. But speaking of which, do you would you reload him? And if so, at what interval? And at what point do you decide to extend? You know, on a patient like this, that's not um, treatment naive. They've had many treatments before uh, and they're clearly doing well. I actually had this patient coming back in five weeks, seeing how they're doing. And so in this case, um, I'm not loading. I did not load. But there are certain cases, depending on the situation, that I would consider definitely loading and then going on and extending. What is your experience? Are you Have you been using 8 milligram aflorosep? I think you had a really phenomenal response. I mean, this patient seems very... VEGF driven. So uh, a, a molecule like eight milligram is going to be fantastic option for this patient. And hopefully they can get that durability that they need. I certainly do have quite a bit of experience using it both on treatment naive patients, um, but also in patients that I just am looking to extend. I think in terms of patients that are recalcitrant, uh, that list is sort of growing, but um, certainly I, I kind of use it as my great extender. So Mm -hmm. Bread and butter cases, patients who have been locked into two milligram um, fixed intervals. I think those are the great patients to start with to try at eight milligrams for. You know, and I guess the question is out there, you know, some people are early adapters, some people are not, right? Some people like to sit back and wait. Why do you think um, you're um, more comfortable or even myself, I guess, to be an early adapter to some of these newer um, agents? Yeah, I definitely scrutinize the data very closely myself. So I will look at those uh, percentages myself, you know, instead of just being told, oh, it's all the same, you know, there are no major safety signals. You know, I will ask those questions and dig a little bit deeper for one. And then for two, my group is heavily involved in clinical trials. So we often get exposure to many of these medications before they even come to market. So there is a comfortable sort of familiarity with these medications so they don't seem so new to us. I agree. I think that being a product of the trial, we've been exposed to it actually for some time, relatively speaking, before being hit to market. And I think that breeds confidence um, in using the medication. Now, with that being said, obviously, we always know that we're always concerned about safety. And when it hits the market and we're using higher volumes, I think we're always keeping an eye out or an ear out for these things. And so definitely caution there um, when it when necessary. You know, in this picture here, you can also potentially see on the near infrared some signs of geographic atrophy. 
Are you commonly treating your patients, like in this case, with wet AMD, also treating with geographic atrophy? Yeah, so I have my homework cut out for me. So I almost have to re-evaluate every patient and I just can't write off, you know, looking closely for GA. So I've had to scrutinize the OCTs, the infrareds more closely. And then if I'm having trouble really pinpointing it, I will get a a fundus autofluorescence to better identify those areas of geographic atrophy. But yes, now we're not only having to monitor one disease, but two diseases at the same time. Yeah, and I will tell you, it's definitely changed my practice pattern. You know, getting more fundus autofluorescence on my patients with AMD is a little bit burdensome on my techs. You know, definitely OCT, we used to get on everyone, but then now also adding in uh, fundus autofluorescence has added to that bottleneck in clinic. Um, so, yeah. you know, navigating through that uh, challenge as well can be sometime um, a little bit interesting, I would say. You getting it for everyone or just those that you have a high degree of suspicion for? Those that I have a high degree of suspicion on. And I, I will tell you, I'm not repeating the fundus autofluorescence after, you know, say I do decide to have patients on treatment for um, geographic atrophy. Um, I'm not doing a fundus autofluorescence at every follow-up visit. I think that in general, the point of me doing the fundus autofluorescence is to see if there's a change. And I don't think every two months or every month getting it is going to show much. So I extend it and maybe do it every um, two or three visits. Yeah, same, like every six months or so. Exactly. Um, Let's move on to the second case. But prior to that, would you have done anything differently in this patient here? I think the case was handled beautifully. I mean, I think every retina specialist does things a little bit differently, but I honestly would have done exactly what you would have done in this case. You know, they went through the ringer and then hopefully we'll see. I'm hopeful that with eight milligrams, they will finally be able to pass that threshold of every seven weeks and see how it goes. So here's case two, uh, 78 year old male. Again, I like to go through some of the comorbidities. This patient has diabetes as well as hypertension and hypercholesteremia. So all indicators that may have a increased risk or preponderance to developing AMD. Um, No history of tobacco um, or alcohol or illicit drug use. And again, this patient lives alone and is still driving. Vision you can see here is 2030. So, you know, big thing this patient is asking, doc, you know, I live on my own, I'm independent. Can I maintain driving? Can, how is this that going to be possible? And so let's look on the picture here and go ahead, tell me what you see here on the OCT. So it looks like in the first slide, the patient received bevacizumab, but ironically had a worsening in their subretinal fluid. So the decision was made right off the bat to switch to ranibizumab 0.5 milligrams. Agree with that completely. Why even waste time? This is a patient who, because of their good vision at baseline, uh, you don't want to mess around with. Um, So switching, I think, was very reasonable. At a month later and subsequent follow-ups, it looks like the patient had been maintained on ranibizumab every four weeks, um, but it's still not adequately controlled. There is a good amount of subretinal fluid in this patient, despite the regular dosing intervals. Perfect. You know, and one may look on this picture and it kind of looks funny, right? You know, this is a patient you wonder, could they have um, CSR? Um, I will tell you that the, the choroid doesn't look that thick to me that you would have consistency, but it's definitely something on, on the forefront of the mind. Um, but the patient did have response, thankfully, and it is odd. And we clearly see that the vision did drop. So that was the concern and reason for switching agents more quickly. Cause again, we don't want to lose anything if we don't have to. 
here is the fondest photo and the fondest photo I know um, is not as clear, but there's some Drews and RP changes and possibly able to see, um, hard to see on a 2D picture, but there's elevation with the subretinal fluid. So here they were continued on ranibizumab and then eventually placed on a flibercept two milligram because we were unable to get extension. And again, they were continued. And you see, there is some baseline fluid there. Are these patients, you know, the onus is, is it okay to have these patients have some fluid or do we need to treat to dryness? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's the big question, right? So it's interesting that the vision is very excellent. It's 2025, despite that persistent pocket of subretinal fluid. Mm -hmm. And anecdotally, I have some patients for whom with a switch of a medication, I was able to get rid of that subretinal fluid, but patients almost felt like their vision got worse. And so right. they requested a switch back to their other medication um, that allowed them to subjectively have better vision. But as we were talking about earlier, I think fluorescein and you know additional imaging, so fluorescein angiogram or autofluorescence might be helpful in this case, um, just because of this sort of atypical response and persistent fluid, just to think outside the box. It certainly doesn't look like a case of polypoidal or any of those things, but, you know, Sometimes you'd be surprised, you know, I've been surprised when I've, I've gone back to the drawing board and to reevaluate these patients and take a closer look. I completely agree. Um, and you can see here in this case, I brought up um, in July 2021, we thought about using brolicizumab and you can see here patient received it. And for the first time, they continued four doses and was extended to eight weeks. Right now, you can see at eight weeks, their fluid started to recur. And again, in this situation, because of the concerns for safety, as we discussed before, we retransitioned the patient back to Flibrisep 2 milligram. But maybe this shows that there was a potential to have the patient dry. And that's what that was able to, to provide for me. In addition, there are many times I may have the patients come back two weeks after a treatment or injection to see if the patient's completely dry at that point to know what is the potential or am I able to get them completely dry? Yeah, and at least in this case, that's what brilicizumab was allowing me to get some more information on in terms of the patient's disease state. So uh, as I mentioned, went back to aflibercept and then this patient, when furisumab came into play, which is one of our newer agents, they were transitioned to furisumab approximately over a year ago. And we can see here, great response Nice improvement, but again, when we start to stretch this patient out to five weeks, right? So keep kept them on every month, 13 injections, they did fantastic. We take them, give them a chance, feel confident. Look how much fluid came back immediately after. That is very disheartening after a mere one week extension. But like you said, we all have these patients who are just extremely sensitive and need their injection. Um, just curious, does the patient feel like their vision fluctuates? Because sometimes the patients can tell me like they just know that they're due. due. Is there like corroborating visual symptoms for this patient? Yeah, unfortunately, yes, they were noticing that. And I tell you, they actually lived uh, far away from the office. And so the, the distance coming in um, every month was very onerous and burdensome. And they would notice it because it would take them a little bit longer. If the vision it, he was noticing, you know, his vision wasn't doing as well, it would increase because he was more, you know, um, cautious in driving. It would take him even longer to get to the office. And so no question he, before coming in, would be able to identify and say, hey, doc, you know, a couple of days ago is when I started noticing that drop in vision. And so we can listen to our patients a lot of time to get a good response or a thought between them. Um, no, I will tell you because of this, 
um, there is again the opportunity to switch the patient to a Fibrocep 8 milligram, which is what the patient then received in October. And again, responded really well. Now, again, this patient seems to respond really well after transitioning or changing to a new agent every time. I am hopeful that this will continue to improve. Do note the patient's vision did drop, but the patient is scheduled for cataract surgery. So that's why the vision dropped. No patients at 2080. And I'm hopeful, but um, what are your thoughts? Is there, you know, any other concerns would you have done again, anything differently in a situation like this? Agree with you completely. This is one of those cases where like, what have we got to lose, right? Assuming that safety signals are all okay. What have we got to lose by trying something different? It can only get better from here because even at every four weeks, you know, the, the um, there's persistent fluid. So the disease is not fully controlled. So thinking outside the box, trying to mix it up. I think you did the same thing that I would have done. Yeah. And I plan on loading this patient, giving them the best um, hope to be able to extend, and then we'll see how it goes. Um, but that's what I have for you. And thank you so much for joining the discussion. Um, hope everyone found it um, interesting and they learned something from it. And I always enjoy having this conversation with you, Esther. Thanks for those great cases. See you, Dave.